Welcome to Bread. From the beginning, God's people have engaged in the regular worship of God. From a biblical perspective, not only is worship of God our highest calling, it is in fact integral to who we are. So understanding what worship is, how we do it, and practicing it enables us to become more fully ourselves. This short series covers the worship life of Bread. From sung worship and services on a Sunday, to a general posture of worshipfulness throughout our daily lives, to worshiping God with our resources, our time, and our gifting. Enjoy! Amen. Would you like to take a seat? Uh, Very nice to see you all. My name is Ed, um, and along with my wife Hannah, I lead the church that meets here. Uh, It's good to have you with us. Uh, We're doing something slightly different today uh, in that we uh, normally uh, have a bit more worship at the beginning and then we speak and then uh, we pray for people and we're going to have a little bit more worship at the end because we are beginning a mini little series over the next few weeks on worship, on the subject of worship. What is it? Uh, Why do we do it? How does it work? What's it for? All those sorts of things. Uh, So today is really a sort of introduction to the subject a lot of what I say, if you've been in church for a bit, probably won't be um, uh, anything particularly new or rocket science, but I think it's good now and again just to remind us of um, what we come to do when we sing these songs of worship uh, to God. So, question number one, why worship at all? Um, a common complaint people can often have about the subject of worship from when it's uh, raised is this. Why, why actually do we have to worship God? Have you ever found yourself saying that? What's wrong with him that he needs to be worshipped? How insecure does he have to be that we, his people, need to sing praises to him? Or is he so self-absorbed that he wants the whole world to tell him how wonderful he is? Because he's a little bit insecure on that. Now, I do have some sympathy for these questions. I understand that. Um, But I think what they do is they belie a misunderstanding of the nature, one, of who God is, but also the nature of who we are. Firstly, who we are. These questions suggest that we have actually some control over whether we are worshippers or not, whether we worship or we don't. The truth is we can choose to worship God or not, but this doesn't mean, therefore, we are not worshipping at all. It's just whether we are aware of it or not, we will find something to worship because that is who we are. Everyone worships something. This is what it actually means to be human. It is written into your DNA. It is part of who you are. You are a worshiper. You worship and worship and worship whether you know it or not. As you may know, I'm an Arsenal football fan, which probably means nothing to most of you, Uh, but it means a very large amount to me. And um, I used to go to the stadium when I lived in uh, God's own country called England. And uh, we'd go to the stadium, and football in the UK is a very strange thing. It's basically for um, middle-aged, overweight, pale men. Uh, That's who it in in general attracts. And uh, they go along with their bad teeth and their sweat. And they let it rip in a football stadium. Uh, British people in general are quite reserved, as you know, but when it comes to football, that is when they all hang out, all, let it all hang out, sometimes literally. Uh, and sometimes alcohol is involved, and it frees them up to sing songs, singing songs about their team, singing songs about the manager, singing songs about the players, singing songs derogatorily to, uh, towards other teams. They just go for it, and you will see, the only time ever you will see, pale, 
middle-aged, overweight men crying. They will cry and cry and cry in joy and wonder at the team because they worship. They worship. It's the one place where they are free to go, I love this thing. I love it. I got up at 5.45 this morning just to watch a football game. It's ridiculous. But it's worship. Because it is built into us, we have to find something to worship because we are made to worship. And I think the best expression of this idea is still not, um, uh, has not been better expressed than by um, the novelist David Foster Wallace, um, who, uh, this is, it's sort of done the rounds quite a few times, it's a little bit old now, but he spoke at uh, Kenyon College, and this was his commencement address. Uh, it's well worth repeating because I think it's incredibly um, poignant. He was not uh, a believer, he was not a Christian, I think he probably called himself an atheist, but he said this, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily conscience. We're all worshippers. And it's worth asking yourself, actually, right now, as you sit in your pew, what is it that you're worshipping? What is it that you are giving time and attention and affection to? What fills your mind and thoughts? What is it that you go after every day that has the potential to eat you alive? Because anything other than the true God, the Christian claim goes, will actually rob you of life rather than filling you with it. And that is the trick for the Christian person to keep the only thing worthy of our worship, the true and living God, as the only thing receiving our worship. So that's the nature of us. We are worshippers. Secondly, the nature of God. Christian worship is not done because God needs it. He needs our worship no more than he needs a massage because he's put his back out, or he needs a little lie down, or he needs a refreshing glass of something because he's exerted himself. God is, was, and always will be in need of absolutely nothing. He's fine. Don't worry about him. He's doing absolutely fine. He's complete. That's what it means to be God. So he does not pursue our worship because he is rampantly insecure or horribly self-absorbed. Instead, he wants our worship because worship of him is what we are made for and we are incomplete without it. He wants it for us, for us. Have you ever wondered in an idle moment what the Trinity is doing all the time? God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing for all of time, before time, right now, and forever. They are loving on each other in the vernacular of our time. That's what they've always been doing. John 16 and 17, 
the Father glorifies the Son. So the Father is saying, Jesus, I love you. I, I, I adore you. I think you are incredible. I'm placing my whole self in you so that you can reveal me to the whole of humanity. You are great. I will bring glory to you. I will show the world how wonderful you are. And the Son is going, oh, Father, I love you. I'm not going to do anything else other than what you tell me because you're amazing and I want everyone to see who you are. You're incredible. And then the Spirit turns up and goes, guys, guys, I love both of you. You're brilliant. I'm going to show, I'm going to point everyone to you because you're wonderful. You're the greatest things in the whole universe. And then the Father and Son go, Spirit, we love you too. You're great. You're like our little messenger. You're going to go out everywhere, and you're going to spread the news about us. And we all love each other, and they're all slapping each other on the back and giving each other high fives and fist pumps and loving on each other. Love and love and love and love. This is what the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son do all the time. And the issue is that is what we are supposed to enjoy. That is what we were made for, to enter into this love of God. It's why our hearts can ache when we don't experience it. In our broken selves, in our corrupted selves, we have given up that triune glory, that relationship with God. But through Jesus' death, he reinstates us and he brings us back into it. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, but not just that. Because if we are God's children, says Paul, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. We are brought in glorifying God just as the Trinity glorifies itself. And so to be fully human, to actually be fully alive is to be fully involved in the worshipping life of the triune God. It's why so often when people come into the presence of God and see a congregation worshipping together, especially if they've been away for a long time, they feel something. Ever felt something? If I had a dollar for every time someone told me that they came to church and they just felt the presence of God, I would have hundreds of dollars. The first time I came to church as an adult, um, I brought up as a Christian, but I sort of um, I got away from it as far as I could. Uh, but in my early 20s, I walked back into a church having thought there was nothing spiritual to life at all. I thought it was all done. And I walked into the building and I said to God, I don't even believe in you, uh, but I'm still talking to you, which is weird. But I don't believe in you. Um, but uh, I'll come along to this, but I'm not going to get involved. And then I walked through the doors, and then I just burst into tears, and it felt like a relief. That was the only expression I could give to it. And it, a relief, it's like I'm coming home. Now, I thought maybe I'm coming home to these people or to this thing. What it really is, is coming home to Jesus. Because it's what we are made for, and we know it. Deep down in our spirits, we know when we are not with God. We feel lost. We feel like we have been separated. We feel like uh, we are wandering, not quite knowing where we're going. And then if we experience God's presence, we feel like everything is at 
order. Even if our lives are in complete disarray, we know that actually there is a peace and, an, uh, and a, um, uh, a kind of uh, centering of our spirits in the presence of God. So worship is what we're meant for. But, and here's where it gets really exciting, in the same way that the Trinity brings glory to one another within it, God also amazingly brings glory to us as we worship. We don't just glorify God, God glorifies us. As Paul goes on to say in the same chapter in Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There is something of a sort of virtuous circle going on in our worship of God. We give glory to him, he gives glory to us. This is what makes worship not just an activity of our spirits, but also an activity of the spirit of God. In it, we experience him. It's why, going back to that David Foster Wallace quote, worship of anything has the potential and will ultimately eat us alive. Whereas worship of the true God will bring us to life, will fill us with his life as he worships within himself and brings glory to you, brings you up, pulls you up. So why worship? Because he's the only one worthy of it. It's what we're made for and it brings us life. Question two, what does Jesus say about it? Well, let me read a relatively famous passage from John's Gospel where Jesus has just met with a Samaritan woman. Uh, and we pick up the story after Jesus has foretold that this woman has been married five times and is currently living with someone who is not her husband. So this is John chapter four, uh, verse 19 onwards. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So the central issue dividing the Jews and the Samaritans, who were uh, kind of technically Jewish, but they had um, uh, interracially married, and therefore they were actually seen as sort of the lowest of the low, uh, by um, purebred Jews at the time. And the central issue was where should God be worshipped? The Jews said uh, in the uh, temple in, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the Samaritans believed God's uh, presence rested uh, on Mount Gerizim in the temple that they had created there. And that's where um, uh, the woman and Jesus are now standing. Hence, verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is the issue. It divided a whole people group 
But with one very short little answer, Jesus destroys all questions by actually turning the whole thing on its head. He says this, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He does this in a very interesting way. He doesn't actually answer her question directly, but he changes the focus. What both Jews and Samaritans were desperately wanting and waiting for was for God to visit his people, for the Messiah to come and to lead them out of what they saw as captivity, captives in their own land. But the Samaritans had rejected all but the first five books of the um, Hebrew scriptures, and it was in those extra books that were all the hints and prophecies about what this Messiah would look like. And so, whilst they believed in a coming Messiah, the Samaritans really knew nothing about him. The Jews, on the other hand, had all the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, and so they had hints about what this Messiah would look like, that he would come from David's line, etc., etc. And it's why, therefore, um, Jesus says, salvation, the Messiah, the one you are waiting for, will come from the Jews. This is uh, what has been prophesied. But the interesting point is that what Jesus has done is he's reframed the question. He's not really interested in discussing where anyone should worship, who is right and who is wrong, or the specifics of worship would look like. Verse 21, a time is coming, he says, when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It does not matter. What does matter is everything that he's about to say. And in saying this does not matter, he comes up, uh, up close in confrontation to the religious attitude that is portrayed by the Samaritans. The attitude that fixates on minor details, that blows them out of all proportion. The one that seeks to say, you've got to do it like this, you must worship out here, you've got to do it in this way, not this way, you've got to use these songs, not these songs, you've got to do it in, uh, in, uh, with this attitude, these um, words, etc., etc. He destroys all barriers, all barriers between Jews and Samaritans, between Gentiles, between uh, slave and free, male and female, conservative, liberal, and he does it by killing it off in his body because he is the Messiah that no one was expecting. They were expecting a victorious king to lead them out of uh, slavery, to lead them out of uh, their oppression from the Romans, and yet Jesus comes as this suffering servant, as a Messiah no one actually recognized. But he does it because what he is interested in is destroying everything that separates people from God, the God, the triune God, whom uh, they were made to be in relationship with. What Jesus says is, none of you are pure or moral or devoted enough, but rather than discard or destroy you, I on the cross embrace you with my arms open wide so that you can be made back again with me. So the question Jesus is interested in is not how, but who, which is where this interaction ends up. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, I am. I, the one who am speaking, am he. I am not just the Messiah, I am God himself made known. 
So Jesus is the end to all questions of who God is, and therefore the end to all questions about what worship is about. It's about him. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the deliverer that Israel had been waiting for. And he is the salvation of the world. He is the one who has destroyed everything that holds us back. He is the one who has emancipated his people and brought them back into relationship with him. And so our battle is always whether we will actually let Jesus be our God. Can we actually let him be the one who takes our attention, who is our focus? Can we let him be in charge? Are we going to actually worship him? Are we? Or are we going to worship some version? Or are we going to worship something else entirely? As I've said, when we come into God's presence, we often meet two people. We meet Jesus in all his grace and beauty and wonder, and as we've just been singing, it's, it's great to see him again, isn't it? To, see, to remind ourselves and to sing his praises, to see his character. We meet him, but often when we meet him, we also meet ourselves, and we see quite how big the gap is between him and us. And we can go, oh, I'm not sure about this. I want to get out of here because he is great and I'm not sure I am. The key is to allow him to tell us what he thinks of us, to receive his forgiveness and to allow him to lift you up as you worship. So, just to end in this brief introduction, how do we do it? Firstly, we do it in the spirit. Verse 24, God is spirit. Therefore, worship which connects to him is not determined by external categories like place or performance. Worship is by the human spirit through the action of the Holy Spirit connecting to God as spirit. Uh, I've said this before, but uh, a friend of mine who actually is recently a Oscar winner, which was very bizarre. Uh, I was watching the Oscars, and then there he was, winning an Oscar. It was very weird. Uh, he won the minor one that no one cares about. Uh, but anyway, he's, uh, he, um, he was in a very small meeting, and I remember uh, he's a Christian, we were um, worshipping together, and he just saw in his mind's eye, as uh, it's a bunch of young people just worshipping, he saw in his mind's eye this um, vision of Jesus wandering the room. And because it was sort of teenagers who were all trying to sing really well and impress each other with their harmonies, and their, uh, everyone was, was going, oh yeah, who, who, you know, who did you see Jesus go and listen to? And, but what Jesus was doing in, the, in my friend's um, kind of vision of him was not placing his ear next to their mouths, but placing his ear next to their hearts and listening to their heartbeats, listening to actually what's going on beneath the surface. This is what real worship looks like. The Psalms talks about deep calling to deep. It's like the depths of your being relating to the depths of God's spirit. Which is not to say, of course, that um, our sound and musicianship are not 
uh, important. When God creates in Genesis, the refrain is um, he sees everything and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and when it's finished, it's very good. Because for God, things uh, that he creates, things that he is part of, aren't just passable. They're not just okay. They are wonderful and beautiful and exceptional in every way. And it's brilliant to see people who have great skill and ability uh, leading us in worship, as we always do this, uh, at this church. But it's never to the detriment of our worship being in the spirit, from our hearts, from the depths of our beings. It's why we always try not to hype anything up. We don't try to like, whip up a froth. That's not what uh, worship in the spirit is about at all. It's about our spirits connecting to his spirit and allowing his spirit to meet us exactly as he wants to. So then, where is the spirit in worship? Well, I know people have come from various different um, traditions of church. And uh, if you come from a reformed tradition, uh, you would probably say that the spirit is there primarily at work in the preaching and the reading of the Bible. If you've come from a more liberal tradition, uh, you'd probably say that the spirit is there in the work of God's uh, loving community. The Catholic tradition would say the spirit is primarily at work in the sacraments. And the Pentecostal tradition would say, well, hey, it's all going to get exciting. The Spirit is at work in all the whooping and hollering and falling over and, uh, and the gifts and that sort of stuff. Well, let me just read to you um, what the first church exhibited. This is the first church of spirit-filled believers in Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the reformed bit. And to fellowship. That's the liberal bit to the breaking of bread, that's the Catholic bit, and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs, the Pentecostal bit. The spirit cannot be constrained, no matter how much Christians have done this from the get-go, trying to control God, trying to say it happens like this, let's form another denomination, let's be right about this, and you're wrong about this, and then probably kill you at a stake, or something like this. Instead, the spirit does whatever he likes, and he fills the whole thing through God's word, through the sacraments, through loving community, through signs and wonders. He does it all. And what we are called to is to follow the spirit wherever he leads. Now, obviously, we will have, because of our personalities and our upbringings, various different um, pre um, set ideas of what we find comfortable and what we find nice, and that's absolutely fine. I'm British, as you can tell. As I've said, British people, reserved. Not going to get a flag out. Don't really like flags. If you like flags, go for flags. <laughs> Ultimately, it's about our spirit connecting to his spirit. Something Ben is going to talk about more about next week. So it's done in the spirit. It is also in truth. Now, this has a couple of layers of meaning. It is not, though, primarily speaking of honesty and integrity in our worship, which is often actually how it's interpreted. It's not the case that if we aren't entirely 100% heartfelt in our worship, then we are not going to be pleasing to God. Let me just uh, disabuse you of any uh, worries about this. None of us is 100% authentic at all, ever. Not once. So we should just 
take ourselves off the hook and not worry too much about that when it comes to our relationship with God. If you do happen to find something that is 100% authentic and integrity-driven and wonderful, then please don't join it. You will ruin it because you are not 100% authentic. Which isn't to say, of course, that integrity in worship is not important, but to speak of worshiping in truth, as Jesus says here, what he's really saying is worshiping the true, the actual truth. That's what we are going for. Elsewhere in the gospel, John says that Jesus came full of the truth, Jesus is the truth, that the spirit is the truth, the spirit guides us into all truth, and that God's word, i.e. Jesus, is truth. So in this context, where Jesus is saying that the only thing matters is actually whether you are going to worship him in all of his truth. It's to speak of spirit-led, Christ-centered, and Christ-enabled gospel worship. So do you know the truth? Do you see him? How much do you know about Jesus of Nazareth? I would strongly recommend, if you find reading the Bible difficult, just stick to the gospels for as long as it takes, because do you know who's there on every page? The only one who really matters. Read about him, see what he is like, no one has seen God, but the one from the bosom of the Father has made him known. If you want to know what God is like, he is there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he looks like. And what he has come to do, as he says in his manifesto, is to bring good news to the poor. It's to release those who feel oppressed, who feel in captivity, who feel like society, religion, the demonic, spiritual forces have held them back. Jesus comes and says, I am here, the real one, the true one, and I am coming to liberate you all. I'm coming to bring recovery of sight to the blind, those who feel like they are walking through life and it's just a fog, where you can't really see to the left or the right. You don't know what the truth is. Jesus is coming to say, I'm bringing complete clarity of vision spiritually, emotionally, physically. He's come to bring good news for those who haven't heard any good news for a long time. Jesus is here to give the greatest news ever, that you matter, that you haven't been left alone, that he's with you, that he has purpose and meaning for your life, and that he wants to lift you up. And as I said, worship is not one-way traffic. It's not just us doing something to God. It's joining in the relationship that the Trinity enjoys. And with that comes a pouring out of his Holy Spirit. The interaction with uh, the Samaritan woman follows immediately on from Jesus' promise of a total heart-drenching, soul-quenching spiritual fulfillment. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst, says Jesus. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them like a spring welling up to eternal life from their very depths. The Spirit is poured out on everyone without measure. You should be greedy for the Spirit. 
you should be uh, pushing people aside to get more of the Spirit because the Spirit is wonderful. He is water to your soul. He will lift you up. He will bring freedom. If church has always felt like a drag, there is a good reason for this. It's a lack of the Spirit. That's only it, ever. What you want is to get as much of the Holy Spirit as you can get. Press down flowing over so that you might actually be the person that now and again you catch a glimpse of so that you might be connected with him it's a free gift you don't have to have the spirit if you've been told to be scared of the spirit then kindly reject those people and that teaching and get the spirit because jesus says it's for you and it's for everyone and the more you have of it the more you will be brought to life now sometimes this gift precedes uh, our worship when the Spirit, uh, it's one of my favorite bits in the Bible, when the Spirit descends on the Gentiles, the Gentiles were uh, thought not to be included in the people of God, and then Peter has a dream, and he realizes that they are, so he goes and preaches to some Gentiles, and Peter is very good at doing boring sermons. He did a very boring sermon in Acts 2, and now in Acts 10, he has perfected the art. And he has such a boring sermon that not only is everyone bored, but the Holy Spirit is bored too, and the Holy Spirit cannot stand it anymore. So while he is still speaking, it says the Holy Spirit just falls on all the people. And they start worshiping and praising God and speaking in other tongues. And then all the Jewish believers go, oh my goodness, they've received the Spirit as well. Can we stop them getting baptized? The Spirit just falls because the Spirit gets to do whatever he likes, whenever he likes, because he's God. And then at other times, uh, the Spirit comes uh, after a period of praying and worshiping. In Acts 2, the disciples and before Pentecost are all together praying and seeking God and as they do so after a few days the spirit falls in such power that the whole world is turned upside down so to end what about us well there is always an element of our wills involved are we going to do it are we are we going to come to church and when we come to church, are we actually going to engage with the worship thing? Are we a little bit hungover? Are we a little bit tired? Are we a little bit, I don't like this song, I wish they wouldn't play this song because they played the song that I really like. Are we going to do it? Or are we going to say to ourselves, like David says in the Psalms, all that is within me, bless his holy name. I am going to do it. I'm going to speak. Speak to your heart. Speak to your mind. Speak to your emotions. Speak to your soul and tell it, right, I'm going to do this because I know it's true. And I'm going to worship him, and then I'm going to see what happens. And as we do that, it doesn't stay there. As we bring glory, we are also glorified. And as the old hymn goes, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Should it be emotional? Absolutely it should be emotional. Are you an emotional being? Yes. And I say that as someone who is not very um, good at expressing emotions. You are an emotional person. To worship, to be a Christian, is to bring your whole self. Now, of course, there's something that's true, which is um, over-emotionalism, which is not a good thing, where our emotions are the only thing that matters. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, but what we are looking for is to bring our whole selves to the table. And as a very non-emotional British person, I have found that the more I'm actually able to open myself, as much as I can, which is always very difficult, the more God brings to life every single part of me. 
So do not fear what other people think of you. Do not fear about um, actually God touching your emotions and your emotions being brought to life. That is good. Do it. Allow God to do it more. Bring your whole self in and see what he might do. King David, who is always a good example when it comes to worship, the chief worship leader of Israel, uh, when he rescues the ark and brings it back, he famously dances uh, before all his people as the king, wearing just a little loincloth, tiny little flap of cloth, and he's dancing around, and his wife is very embarrassed, and his wife publicly comes up to him and says, do not do that. You are embarrassing yourself, David. Look at you. You are dancing. Everyone just picture it in your mind. You are dancing with a little flap of loincloth. What are you doing? And David's response is, ah, yes, I know. I will become even more undignified than this. What is even more undignified than this? It's no cloth. It's dancing with no cloth. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do that now. It would be fun. Uh, but I don't think anyone would come back. But what it speaks of is the freedom. Are you free in the presence of God? Do not be scared. Be free. He wants you to be totally free. To worship him. So to end, let me um, go back to where we started. Where are you worshipping? Would you like to just uh, spend a moment thinking about where your affections lie? This is just between you and him. And is there anything that you would like to just leave at the foot of his throne of grace? give it over to him so that you can actually come back into his presence and worship him. Because who knows what might happen. A friend of mine, uh, and I'll finish with this, tells a story of um, being in a very small northern church in England, um, sort of a tiny little chapel thing, and there was about 50 people there, and they were worshipping God together. And they were all singing, and it had all gone uh, quite loud. And then suddenly, uh, the whole thing was interrupted by shouts and screams at the back. And a man was shoved uh, to the front of the gathering saying, uh, he was just sort of exclaiming, I've been healed, I've been healed. And my friend, who uh, is very cynical like me, went, yeah, right. Uh, How do you know you've been healed? How do you know? And uh, the guy said, um, well, I was mute. I was born mute been mute all my life and now I am praising God proof enough for you this is what happens when we come into the presence of God his spirit can do wonderful things would you like to let him it will do us good he will glorify you as you glorify him he will lift you up and see the freedom and joy all the fruit of the spirit that are poured out onto you. Amen. Amen. So let's stand. We have some time. If at any point you need to go, you can go. And this is really about you and God. What's most comfortable for you? 
whilst trying to be as open as possible to whatever God wants to do. You may need to move out of the aisles, you may need to sit down, you may need to lie down, you may need to um, do whatever you can to be in a place where you can um, actually give from your spirit. You might not even need to sing the songs, you can just let the music wash over you, but this is about your spirit and his spirit, as deep calls to deep. This is what we're after. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll just uh, spend some time just um, worshipping God uh, together and just see what happens. just reminded of uh, Jesus's most famous parable about a son who gets lost and his father waits for him day after day after day patiently waiting for him looking out for him and when the son comes to his senses and decides cap in hand to go groveling back to his father his father sees him and while he's still far off his father leaves the home and runs towards him And he puts a cloak on his back and a ring on his finger. And he says, my son who is, alive, who is dead is alive again. Let us celebrate. This is the picture of God welcoming every single person into his presence. Allow him to receive you back. If you need to go back to him, if you know you've been far off, come to him now and receive his embrace because he loves you. And let's worship him together.